Hello, and welcome to the Kitchfork Media Podcast, an anti-nostalgic look back at the music of the aughts, the influential website Pitchfork Media, and all the indie kitsch and hipster trash it unleashed upon the world. Uh, I am your co-host, Liz Ryerson. Uh, I'm your other co-host, Max Cohen. And today we're here to talk about a whole world unto itself, the music of the artist slash band Shoo Shoo, spelled X-I-U, X-I-U. That's right, we did Chick Chick Chick, and now we're doing Shoo <laughs> Shoo. Other than having weird names that people would often say together, they have almost nothing to do with each other. But they do form like the boundaries of our alphabetical list at this point. That's true. Until we do Zwan, eventually. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, I don't want to talk about Billy Corrigan ever. <laughs> Oh, but Zwan is so funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to put it. But so Shu Shu, a long-standing avant-garde, experimental, industrial—I don't even know how to describe the music of Shu Shu. It is a little bit one of one. Definitely a very iconoclastic band. Yeah, they're still around. The main member being Jamie Stewart, of course. There's some big members that have come in and out, but Jamie is is the center, the main vocalist and songwriter for the band. And yeah. And I, I feel like they were also sort of like a tentpole act of music in the aughts. They weren't necessarily like indie tentpoles like an Arcade Fire or a Wilco, but like for the... Or Sufjan. Or, or Sufjan, yeah. but for the depressed art fags of the indie world, like Juju was like the thing for that entire decade. <laughs> Well, people knew who they were, but I mean, not necessarily. People often didn't speak of them positively. I feel like people speak of them more positively now, probably, than they did then. I don't know if I agree, because like, I think they were definitely a polarizing band. I think you, a lot of people either, you either loved them or you really hated them. Yeah. But one of the things that surprised me, kind of going back to the reviews, like Pitchfork never gave them like below a 7.5. Um, and a lot of the other like, online sites I was checking out, you know, like Stylus and things like that, like loved Shushu. Like they were critical darlings. Yeah. I mean, I just, I think they were used as an example in the same way that like fiery furnaces might've been of like, Oh, these critics, this website is going too far. I'm not going to listen to this shit. You know, I don't know. I saw that opinion expressed a lot on, music message boards and from other people that I knew and yeah I don't know yeah I mean yeah just just different scenes I guess I guess I wasn't on a lot of music forums and like my high school cohort was just like happy to find anything kind of gay and sad yeah I mean I posted on offshoots of the guided by voices forum so oh well much more boomer energy uh to that stuff they're very so. different bands yeah <laughs> yeah but yeah, what's your history with Shushu and this album? Yeah, Shushu, have we talked? Which, by the way, this album is A Promise, the right. second album from 2003, which was given a Best New Music on Pitchfork in 2003, and I think got an 8.6. But yes, what is your history with the this band and this album? Have we talked about eMusic on here yet? I might have vaguely mentioned it. That's the site that was bought out by Amazon, right? Yes. So originally it was sort of like the indie alternative to iTunes with the idea being that unless instead of like buying each track for like a dollar a track, you would get, you paid like a monthly subscription 
and you could download, you know, 30 or 50 tracks and just own them that way, which was like a better deal. But the caveat being that only indie labels are on it. Okay. So the selection was weird, but I I had, I had an account on there and I remember, I think I, I saw the review for Fabulous Muscles and it was so gushing that I was like, I have to, the Pitchfork review, I should say. Yeah. I have to understand what is going on here. Um, and so I went on eMusic for that and like, we'll talk about it later. I, I ended up, I don't love Fabulous Muscles and like the entire Shushu discography, but it was, you know, it at the time I'd never heard anything like it, really. I'd never heard anybody kind of push the boundaries of good sense in this way. Even like bands with like really wild like vocalists always felt like they were trying to be like avant-garde or they were trying to be edgy in a self-assured way. Like even Gigi Allen has this sort of like postmodern like fuck Ugh. you kind of thing going on. Gigi Allen's so stupid. He he is stupid, but beyond beyond that, Jamie Stewart was like willing to be ugly and like willing to be kind of embarrassing in a way that like I found really appealed to me as a, you know, what is 2004 as like a 15, 16 year old. And then I went back from there. I got really into a promise and knife. Like I didn't love fabulous muscles, but a promise and knife party. I was super into knife and play. then I got knife play. Sorry. Knife party is the Deftones song. Oh. <laughs> and then after that, just kind of kept up with them all the way. I think I didn't stop until like after always. And then after that, it was more like, sporadic because by that point I was a mature adult and didn't feel things anymore but they were a big deal I mean they they were the like I was a kid who was really into post-punk and industrial music and they were that they were like one of the very few bands at the time who were really maintaining any kind of like industrial experimental electronic influence at least in the indie sphere you know post-punk was big but like industrial I think was seen was as kind of corny and you wouldn't see it outside of like new metal bands like Fear Factory or whatever yeah, I think it's because of that like edgy aesthetic in mainstream music among like new metal men, which is why we had so much like twee indie kind of in mm-hmm. reaction to that. But yeah, exactly. But there's there's something again. They're iconoclastic. They were they were really strange at the time. They I guess they fit in a little better now, given the like queer electronica, you know, SoundCloud scene. But like I've always. There's just something very unique about Shushu that I haven't gotten in like any other band. Yeah. Even their like restrained stuff, like we will talk about it later, but I actually, you know, even like something like La Ferre, I really, really love. Like I, I love Shushu. I, I was very obsessive. Yeah. I think they're one of the few bands that actually is an appropriate heir to the throne of like those post-punk bands that inspired a lot of indie music in the early 2000s like that late 70s early 80s post-punk i feel like shu shu is one of the only artists who i feel like continued on in that spirit and level of adventurousness basically them and liars yeah you know (laughs) and both of them are still somewhat around although in different different members different different forms. forms but still making good music i mean yeah that last liars album was great yeah and i mean i didn't like the last few shu shu albums i haven't dove into their stuff as much late. I did like forget from 2017 now. Yeah, forget was good. I I like um Girl with Fruit. Girl with a basket of fruit, yeah. I don't know. I don't like their more restrained. Restrained ambient albums, I guess. Ah, uh, I love it. Cuz it's still we'll get into it. We'll get into it cuz it's there's some there's some songs like that on this album. Yeah. So, my history with Shushu is a little less than than yours, but it's also kind of complicated. 
So I did see them because of following Bestie music. I think I was, you know, intensely put off by the cover of A Promise, which we'll get into the history of that cover, by the way, the iconic album cover. And I think I downloaded a Shushu song out of curiosity. And it was like, it's one of the worst songs on Knife Play. So I didn't think, I think it was And Dong, which is like one of the two songs I don't like on Knife Play. <laughs> I, I like And Dong, but I, I can understand uh, that being a huge turnoff. I just had no reaction to it because I think if I had downloaded like Hives, Hives or something like that, my reaction right. would have been totally different. But yeah. And then I remember Fabulous Muscles and I, I had this impression that like, from the cover which is totally the wrong impression but maybe that's intentional that it was like preppy gay music because he oh looks, sure he looks so preppy on the cover it's like 20 jazz funk grades it's like it's very i think it's a very intentionally misleading cover <laughs> yeah um and then in college I, I you know would hear people talk about them every once in a while and the funny story about shushu is one of my friends her and some of her friends who were freshmen in college, like they did this thing called the album project where they like would, you know, each member of their group would like select an album and then they'd all listen to it together and like, you know, not speak while the album was being played. And my friend played the residence one week, like one of their more, experimental ambient albums and then the next week my friend's girlfriend uh who was like they were sorry high school girlfriends like they were from the area my friend's girlfriend came and played a shoo shoo mix for that group like the next week and everyone else completely disbanded the album project because they hated shoo shoo and the residents so much like they didn't want to listen to it oh my god <laughs> that, that, they, that they disbanded i remember saying like your friends are so fucking lame man i'm sorry they're so lame <laughs> oh that would have been so exciting it's it's a moment i mean i feel like if any albums would have be an experience to listen to quietly in a room of people it would be a residence in a shushu album yeah although it was like a shushu mix i guess from their first four albums or so five albums whenever it was but they eventually re resurrected the album project and i participated uh but yeah it was very funny to me but I remember that friend telling me, oh, there's some good Shushu songs. And then people on message boards that I went to who normally like made fun of Shushu as being music that they didn't like because they were, you know, raucous boomers uh, at heart. <laughs> <laughs> Most of them were probably Gen Xers or old millennials. But I remember people being like, oh, Boy Soprano is actually a really good song, but I don't like the rest of Shushu. But damn, Boy Soprano is really good. <laughs> It is really good. It is really good. That was like the gateway song. And I remember someone else talking about women as lovers on that forum when it came out, but I it kind of passed me by. And then I made friends with uh, this person, Daphne, who has known Shushu, the band, and Jamie Stewart since before they were Shushu, like when Daphne was a teen and has very strong attachments to the bands that came before Shushu, Ibopa, and uh, Ten in the Swear Jar, and was like, uh, Knife Play's the only good Shushu album. <laughs> so, because that's 
<laughs> that da- I don't I don't know if Daphne actually believes that, but there is actually a song about Daphne called Daphne on the EP slash single "Fuck the Police," and they're on the cover, a picture of them. That's the one with the cover of a Rihanna song as the which is more famous, uh, only <laughs> girl in the world. Yeah, I mean we'll get into it, but the thing with about Shushu is they're an an intensely like trolley band, so I feel like having a bunch of wild opinions about them is only appropriate. Yeah, but the other thing about the Daphne song and some of the other stuff is that I kind of realized that pretty much every, or at least like a majority of Shushu songs are actually about real people Mm -hmm. and aren't real. I mean, they're exaggerated in a performance way, but like the stories are not necessarily exaggerated. That's certainly not the case with the Daphne song. It's definitely something that happened. So... And I got, so I got into Knife Play and then I downloaded their other first few albums and I liked Fabulous Muscles, kind of bounced off of A Promise and some of the other ones, except for I listened to a couple of the songs from A Promise over and over and over again. Eventually I did actually email Jamie Stewart a few times and and they responded. Uh, by the way, I'm using they, them pronouns because Jamie's wiki uses they, them, but I still see people refer to them as he him so i don't know well but i'm just gonna try to be consistent with that and yeah and and jamie responded uh daphne was telling me that jamie like wanted to compose for (laughs) for video games because they're like a big game fan as you can probably tell by some of their music videos for shushu they also i know on one of those albums they use like the ds korg game (laughs) yeah i think that was dear god i hate myself Yeah, yeah yeah which which was like I love that. I love that little cork thing, but that's one of my favorite Shushu albums also. It's really good. But it's also probably one of the more accessible ones. Like Yeah. I like it when Shushu is doing pop more than experimental music generally. I feel like they're an underrated songwriter. I think it's I mean the thing and and we'll get into it I, that is a constant tension on like everything Shushu's ever done is that they are both this like deeply pop loving melodramatic like pop act like they, they're they really great at intensely melodic songs and they're also like really trolly noise fanatics that love sabotaging themselves in a way that i, I can appreciate like it's a very like postmodern experiment it, it makes me think of like psychic tv the way that they would like <laughs> just make terrible songs to, to mess with people mm-hmm I feel like it affects a lot of their sequencing too. Like a lot of their albums will just like have like their most melodic songs next to like their most difficult music. That's true. That often happens. Yeah. It's kind of a cool energy, but I think it's also exhausting if you're not into it. I mean, I definitely wasn't ready for Shushu. I think I was kind of terrified by this type of music, especially anything talking about like sexual trauma or... Mm -hmm violence and and loud screaming and stuff like i i didn't that stuff was way too much for me until when i got into knife play and stuff which was like 2012 yeah by the time i had gotten into shushu like when i was like 13 and 14 i was super into industrial music like you know nitsurev and nitsurjende neubauten and and skinny puppy so i was kind of used to it (laughs) i guess i'm i was very sensitive about that stuff i'm i'm not so much these days but so yeah i uh i i think it's funny like i actually emailed jamie and i was basically like 
it would be awesome if you did music for someone's game, but anybody who knows Shushu could not afford to pay you what you'd want <laughs> you'd want for you to do music for their game. So I don't know. I feel like that was a depressing thing to email someone, but probably correct. <laughs> yeah, and I did email Jamie actually my album that I released, and I think they responded and you know said something nice. And I and I also met them because i went to a show with daphne in san francisco at the the bottom of the hill the that venue and talked to jamie like briefly and they were very nice so they're by far the musician that we've talked about who i've had the most interaction with even though i've not beyond that but still yeah if we ever do interviews for this podcast they're like probably one of the first people who i'd want to try to ask if they were interested oh i'd love to do that yeah Jamie's it seems like an interesting interviewee. So preparing for this podcast, I watched a lot of interviews and they're super nice and warm mm-hmm. and friendly. And I don't know, I was looking at the comments for because they talked to Anthony Fantano like fairly recently, a couple of years ago. And almost all the comments are, you know, saying nice things about Jamie, like, oh, I emailed Jamie and they responded and we actually talked a little bit. Like there's a bunch of people saying stuff like that or... And people were remarking on this thing, which I I find funny about how you've seen the memes about how um, Miyazaki, the animator, is like very morose, but his films are very sunny, whereas the guy... um, Junji Ito. Junji Ito is like, his work is very dark and disturbed, but he's like very sunny as a person. That's kind Mm -hmm. of like Jamie Stewart's sensibility in interviews, like very friendly in spite of everything <laughs> that we'll talk about that's in the music yeah. and in the real life backstory. So they're, they're very open in a refreshing way. Like, I yeah. think, especially at the time, a lot of indie musicians were really focused on maintaining an image in a way that like, I think Jamie was always happy to puncture. Yeah. And, you know, I relate to that more. Maybe it's, that is somewhat more relatable in the social media age when people are just barfing themselves onto the internet versus something like, I don't know, Sufjan's, the thing about Sufjan Stevens, like we talked about is like, there are aspects to his image, which feel kind of calculated. And For sure. you feel like you don't know exactly what is the genuine person and what is like kind of this hallmark gift card package on it but you're never getting that with shushu so no you know exactly what you're getting i've always felt that like if there's a bot posting curated shushu lyrics it would be one of the most beloved posters of all time because so much of like the way jamie stewart writes feels pretty contemporary to modern queer shit posting yeah and i do think that shushu is influential on a lot of modern like queer artists at least for sure yeah you know, a lot, a lot of like the the more industrial edges of hyperpop, like like black dresses and the like, feel very indebted. Yeah, or Machine Girl, I know, is more influenced by like Nine Inch Nails, but still somewhat. And I think to some extent, even artists like Perfume Genius or Arca definitely owe things to Shushu, even though they're working in a slightly different space. But for sure, or like Sophie's weirder stuff. Yeah. So. It's interesting for me to think about because I, I was thinking about like Shushu's contemporaries in that like era when they were starting out in the first few albums in the South Bay in San Jose ish. And, you know, they were very friendly with Deerhoof as well. And then also 
Matt Most was kind of around there and freaking Zach Hill from Death Grips. And I'm like thinking just together, those people have much more of a lasting influence on music as it is today, contemporarily, especially on the underground than like any of the fucking, you know, New York, very hyped music. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of that Bay Area stuff was very underground. I'm not saying that as like a Bay Area supremacist, by the way, (laughs) because that place is totally destroyed any and all culture. Yeah, it's a vacuum. (laughs) It's destroyed the ability of culture to exist there at this point. So, yeah. Anyway, so there's a lot of history with Shushu, and I'll try to get through it as quickly as I can. Yeah. Thankfully, this album is not that long, so. No, although I, I think there's a lot to talk about in some of the songs, you know? Yeah. And also, we're going to come back to Shushu, so we can get this history out now, and then we won't have to do it when we do yeah. Fabulous Muscles. I would like to have Daphne on as a guest, potentially. Uh, you know, as somebody who has eyewitness experience being part of the scene, in particular, that pre-Shushu. Because mm-hmm. I wanted to ask them more about that, because we've never really talked about it. But yeah, I, I think that like Daphne said that they hated this album basically. So Well, they said it was the worst shoosh like they were surprised at the worst shoo album one. Which it's not. No. But speaking of which, this was a poll winner. So I did a poll after our first poll about halt albums from more established artists that are still, you know, have a lot of albums that people care about. And I think we had this album and Room on Fire by The Strokes and Quebec by Ween. And then... Uh, did we do Blueberry Boat? No, we did You Are Free by Cat Power because these are, are all free, 2003. Right. And right. you tried to you tried to freaking gum up the system <laughs> and get You Are Free to win. And it still got the least number of votes. It did. Cat Power gets no love. <laughs> That's why I had to put my thumb on the scales. We will do Cat Power at some point. I will. I will ensure it. And it can't be the greatest because that album is not good. Yeah, I mean, all those four albums that I listed are all kind of albums I want to talk about, but we're going to have to be judicious and and figure it out. Yeah. But this one won, and it always kind of surprised me, the appeal that this album has. It's their highest rated album on Rate Your Music. That's very strange to me, yeah. I think it's the one that... It's kind of like a, a meme, like you know 10 albums to listen to to freak yourself out kind of thing that's how i think of it or at least that's what i would think of is why it might be the most popular or known among us it's strange to me because it feels like a very sophomore album like it's a very it has a very big second album vibes you know it's pulling from old songs or some really experimental fluff and it's kind of a mess you know i think it has some of their absolute best songs on it but the sequencing is very off and it has some songs that do nothing <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking at you, Walnut Horse. <laughs> Walnut House. Walnut House, whatever the fuck it's named. <laughs> you know, I've come around on a lot of the, the songs on here, and I, I would say I, I have affection for most of them, and I still skip Walnut House. <laughs> yeah, I like the end part. But anyway, we'll get to that in a second. So uh, this album does have a cult following, and, and listening to it for this podcast did grow my appreciation for it and in turn it into an album that I do like and I do feel like is special and unique even in the canon of Shushu albums. So, For sure. But yeah, so the history is Jamie Stewart 
was raised in the town of Los Angeles. I am, uh, I am afraid to tell you all that uh, I'm afraid our child, our blessed child, was in fact a nepo baby. <laughs> yeah. Although it's complicated, as you will see. So Jamie Stewart's dad was Mike Stewart, a very successful musician in a band called We Three. Which they had a big hit in the mid '60s called, or sorry, We Five called "You Were on My Mind." I want to show you a picture, Max, Please. of We Five, and I want you to tell me who you think is Jamie Stewart's father in this picture. Uh, the woman. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, hmm. Middle. No. Who? It's the person on the right. I was yeah. I was, yeah, glasses guy. That makes sense. Because it, it kind of looks like what I'd expect Jamie Stewart to look like in the 60s. The thing is, I the guy on the right also looks a lot like the nerdy friend from The Wonder Years, which so I couldn't <laughs> undo yeah, that. Yeah, the Marilyn Manson. The Marilyn Manson one, yeah. <laughs> so his dad's Marilyn Manson. Uh, oh, God. Also produced a little album known as Piano Man <laughs> for for Billy Joel and uh, Jamie's uncle. I'm uh, is named John Coburn Stewart, um, and I'm afraid to say wrote a little song that you might have heard of called Daydream Believer for the Monkeys. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh my God. Also had a hit called Gold in 1979. I listened to it. The the song sucks. I'm sorry. It's just not a good song. I jump into my car and I throw in my guitar My heart beating time with the breathing Driving over can sing to my soul There's people out there turning music into gold Neither is I Don't Like You Were On My Mind by We Five very much. It actually, it's funny because like the next song that came up like as a recommended song after watching the video for you were on my mind was the circle with red rubber ball which someone mentioned to me as like the most algorithmically generated sounding 60s hit it does yeah for sure yeah you were on my mind is not one of the better it's it's pretty fucking mid it's not although i i would argue that daydream believer slaps oh daydream believer is excellent yeah, and John Coburn Stewart was also part of the Kingston Trio. Oh my god, the Kingston Trio! My dad used to love that band. <laughs> yeah, their second incarnation, I think. But yeah, so Jamie's dad, Mike Stewart, in spite of being very successful, having very successful parents, Jamie's dad was very into drugs and was not around, only would occasionally pop up to like give Jamie uh, an album or something. But yeah not very present throughout their childhood and jamie at some point in high school came out as is queer to their mom and in spite of the fact that their parents you know had a lot of queer friends apparently their mom freaked the fuck out about it and did not handle it well yeah 
So there's a lot of trauma and stuff in that family, especially because of Jamie's dad's alcohol abuse, a lot of other things that we probably don't even know about that, you know, it, it goes deep. Mm-hmm. There's definitely some stuff that Jamie said in interviews and I'm like that hint at very troubling things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to extrapolate too no, much. No, not, not here to speculate, but it, it, you know. I imagine different kinds of child abuse, we'll just say, uh, and various family traumas. Uh, I think for college, I don't know exactly, they ended up moving up to San Jose in the South Bay, and that's when they formed their first bands. Their first band was called Ibopa, I-B-O-P-A. And actually, their dad, so at this point, their dad what did had gotten, I, What did Ibopa stand for? It was like... I don't remember. It is like international. Uh, I don't know. It stands for something. But yeah, their dad actually played in this band because their dad was like clean at this period. And by the time that Jamie sort of became an adult, their dad's like, uh, sorry for screwing up on your whole childhood thing. Uh, oh, wait, wait. Ibopa. Ibopa stands for the indestructible beat of Palo Alto. Uh, okay, that makes sense. It's so funny because Palo yeah, it has such a different association at this point. In the South Bay in general. It's weird to think of the South Bay as producing Shoo Shoo and, and fucking Matmos and, you know. <laughs> yeah, the, the the most twisted queer minds of our musical generation. But yeah, that's what tech people did. They came in and they ruined all the culture of that area and uh, destroyed everything uh, in the world. <laughs> but uh, anyway... So Jamie Stewart's dad actually played in Ibopa and was clean at that point and was like, at that point, like very mentoring and very supportive. And Jamie said at some point, their dad said, why do you want to make music? And they're like, I don't know, it could be fun, you know, being famous and whatever. And Mike's like, you got to take it fucking seriously. Like music is about touching people. You need to go as far out as you can because this is, it's not about, you know. That's the fucking quote I was looking for. <laughs> yeah. They said that their dad always regretted not going farther with their music and chasing a certain idea of success, etc. So, like, at that point, Jamie was like, okay, I need to take this really seriously. And, uh, yeah, Ibopa actually got signed to Elektra Records in 1999, but then was dropped, apparently, shortly after when the label dropped most of its artists. So it's kind of like a similar thing that we talked about with, like, I don't know, a lot of the artists like Spoon or uh, I don't know, fucking Broken Social Scene or whatever, where they had like earlier incarnations that were kind of almost successful. Well, Wilco too. <laughs> yeah, but then just flamed With out. With Uncle Tupelo. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. But it doesn't seem like they were very popular at all. In spite of like both Ibopa and the next band, Ten in a Swear Jar, which you can find their music, especially Ten in the Swear Jar online. I think you can buy it from Shushu's Bandcamp page. Yeah, accordion solo, I think, is, is pretty widely available. It is like pretty much, I mean, it is, it sounds like Shushu, except like a poppier, more upbeat version. Like there's. It's, yeah, it's Shushu as like a rock band with a bunch of people in an accordion player. Yeah, and there's there's some ska influence too. There, there is. I liked it in the swear jar. I don't, I don't like them as much as Shushu, but there, it's especially because like Shushu ended up re recording a lot of these songs. They end up being really interesting takes to compare with. We'll talk about it. When we can. We'll probably compare it when we talk about Sad Pony Gorilla Girl. But yeah, they they feel like this is the kind of band that would get labeled as stomp and holler in our modern era. Oh, true. Yeah, except it's completely 
I don't know. It's completely different because like it's the, not twee, but it's it's using a similar palette. The Jamie Stewart trauma music element is still definitely there. It's just like more of a pop version of it. Absolutely. Put that gun to my temple. Put that gun to my heart. Throw my head out the window and see cement, see cement my feet into the. gets at the fact that the thing that I always think is the most underrated about Shushu I mean they said that they're not a great pop songwriter but I disagree which is wrong yeah it's indisputably wrong like I think Shushu's written some of the best like dance and pop songs of that entire era are you fucking kidding me I mean Apostat Commander when we get there is like I think one of the best songs ever made yeah and I think that's the thing that sometimes frustrates me with Shushu. It's like, you are actually really good at writing pop songs. I wish you would do it more often. I know. Well, and, and that's that self-sabotaging thing, though. I was thinking about, like, on Women as Lovers, that first side has, like, two great songs. And then, like, a song that's it's basically Walnut House. And then, like, the best song they ever wrote, which is No Friend O, in my opinion. <laughs> no Friend O. And then, like... Guantanamo which is again nothing it seems like you know there's that the stories about like you know how Brian Eno always wanted to delete whatever the poppiest thing the band he produced was making oh or the way that like payment whenever Stephen Bachmas felt like he was starting to get at some kind of actual like embarrassing emotional feeling he would try to make a joke about it to, to, to pass it off that's why I don't like pavement. <laughs> Understandably, it seems like Shushu feel that way about their pop instincts. Like, yeah, they'll 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 follow them to their extreme, but then they'll be like, "Well, we have to have something weird and difficult and off-putting to counter this." And, you know, I think one of the reasons why Fabulous Muscles is as big as it is is because it's one of the albums where they do that the least. Yeah, I think that's true. Like, it's it's mostly them following their pop instincts. But yeah, eventually. <sighs> Jamie said in an interview, by the way, uh, I found this interview by the same person who interviewed uh, Dialect, and it has like almost no views, but Jamie talks about some stuff that I haven't seen in other interviews, and it only has like 74 views, so I might actually link it in the episode description. Oh, absolutely. Because it's like, it's really great work for people who do that stuff to almost no acclaim or, or viewership for the sake of you know us making content <laughs> and accurately trying to convey the history of these things but yeah so jamie basically says after a certain point like they just got tired of playing shitty venues with like four people mm-hmm. <laughs> like four people would go to their shows and everyone sort of had jobs and were doing it part-time i think jamie was working at like a, a children's health center part-time and so Jamie and Corey McCulloch, who is also from Ten in the Swear Jar, were living in the same like house. It was kind of like not exactly a punk house, but kind of like a squat, like a really nasty place mm-hmm. from what it sounds like. And they're like, okay, well, we're just going to like, we're going to focus what we're trying to do more because Ten in the Swear Jar is a little more all over the place in terms of like musical influences and all that kind of stuff. So... 
there are like five points that they d- they decided to focus on five different types of music and and this is what jamie said in this interview jamie said it's detroit gay techno dance music noise music british post-punk certain types of asian percussion music and modern classical certain kinds of asian percussion music specifically gamelan there's a lot of gamelan in shushu but yeah, they explicitly sat down and outlined this and said, the music that we're going to make is going to follow these five points, which I find really funny because usually, you know, people don't do things like that so explicitly. Mm-hmm. But then they worked really hard on, you know, and eventually absorbed a few more members on putting together Knife Play, uh, which got some attention. Apparently, they sent it around to as many labels as they could think of and and everyone passed on it and there were apparently a lot more indie labels around at that point in time there were it's kind of wild that they eventually got on five rue christine which was like a which was a a like subsidiary of kill rock stars wasn't it yeah an indie label of an indie label (laughs) yeah they got on an indie label of an indie label because of greg saunier greg saunier Mm -hmm from Deerhoof, who was best friends with Jamie and has been involved throughout with recording a lot of their albums and, you know, helping out occasionally. And and... also the other, like, band that I would consider, like, the big iconoclastic tentpole of indie, like Deerhoof. Yeah. I'm excited for when we eventually get to them because they're they're a whole weird thing. And also one of their big albums is right next to... Is right, yeah. (laughs) Right next to A Promise on Best New Music, so... Mm -hmm. Also very friendly from what I actually have met, you yeah. know, talked to him at one of their shows and one of their other band members, and they were all really friendly. Yeah, I, I hung out with them a few times because they were when they were touring with uh, Sadie, and they are the nicest people I've ever met. Greg Sonia especially is, like, very funny in a very specific, like, impish kind of way. Mm-hmm. That is delightful. And they're an incredible live band, like, to this day. Like, they are a wonder to see live. yeah. They go so hard. So, you know, a lot of times musicians that you like and look up to are sex pests, but sometimes they're actually nice people. (laughs) Sometimes they're the best and they're cool and they're friends. So that's important to remember because I feel like the sex pests get so much attention. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Greg really liked it and was friends with uh, Slim from Kill Rock Stars. Is that the guy's name? I'm going to look this up. Yeah, Slim. Slim Moon. Slim Moon, and apparently, like, you know, passed on the album initially, but because Slim didn't actually listen to it, was, like, left it in his car or something. (laughs) Uh, So they sent it again, and apparently they added, like, two more songs to Knife Play at that point, and was like, okay, I'm into this. And so it was put out on a subsidiary of Kill Rock Stars. I feel like I can't pronounce anything today. (laughs) It's so fine. We're, We're doing our best called five rue christine or five rc and their first several albums were all put out on that label five rc was like the hipster label i feel like with me and my high school friends you know when we were all really into like hella and shushu and Deerhoof. hella which zach hill played in from a certain other musical artist from the 2010s yeah some other band some other band they never really went anywhere i, I don't know i think they're like a rap rock band like they might have some fans on the internet. I don't know. Yeah, some some kind of something. <laughs> they also had the advantage, which is one of the early like rock video game cover bands. Oh yeah, see that's so funny to me. Like the the nerd crossover with like 
there's a little bit of that aspect with Shushu, although it's not as explicit. Or with like Final Fantasy, you know, Owen Pallet. Yeah. Who, by the way, Owen Pallet says that A Promise is his favorite album of all time. He would. <laughs> he's so he's so fucking gay. <laughs> I love it. But yeah. So Nightflake got a little bit of buzz, but they started to really get more buzz with A Promise. And during that time, everything that went wrong could go wrong in Jamie's life. Apparently, like one of the early Shushu shows, they said their dad showed up and he was just incredibly fucked up. Mm -hmm. But he's like, oh, you guys sound good. And then a month later, committed suicide. Um, Only a few months before this album, A Promise, came out. And the song Mike from fabulous muscles is about it's about them but there are a lot of other references to mike and apparently the name a promise actually comes from jamie's mom saying promise me you won't kill yourself Oof. so yeah uh and apparently they lived in a really shitty squat they did not get along with any of their housemates they were incredibly loud and disruptive because their housemates were and they recorded these songs in the midst of this house including the the screaming (laughs) and they all had like side jobs and stuff like that so it it definitely seems like i mean shushu has never been an ultra successful band but they eventually within a few years became successful enough to where they could tour more and they you know become i assume more full-time uh with it so yeah so that's the history of this album and and the early part of the band and i have said before and i first of all i think the first three shushu albums are the best shushu albums i do like dear god i hate myself and some of the other ones but i think they're the ones that i like come back to the most i can't follow you there because i have so much affection for you know la foray and air Air force and women as lovers uh but knife plays my favorite shushu album i think a promise has some of the best songs they ever wrote same with fabulous muscles like i i think there is like, I don't know if I think Shushu's ever released a bad album, but it, it's definitely kind of insane the level of quality these first three albums are working with. I mean, I've said it before, and I, I completely will die on this hill that I think the first three Shushu albums are as musically important as the first three Velvet Underground albums. Absolutely true. And I am a fan of Velvet Underground. I am not somebody no, who, same. who thinks that they're overrated or anything I, like that. I don't know. I don't know how you could listen to the modern music landscape and not think that. It's frustrating to me, and maybe we'll we'll talk about this more. There's a point in history with sixties music, and it's so funny, like actually knowing that Shushu has connection to like popular music of the sixties and seventies because of Jamie's father and uncle. So it's weird looking at it in that context. But like, I mean, if you think about that era of music in the late 60s in particular, because it was so connected to a lot of stuff that was happening in culture, it's so lionized. Even Velvet Underground, who was not a popular band, but their connection to fucking, you know, Andy. uh, Andy Warhol and Nico and even people like Lamont Young or John Cale's connections to contemporary classical stuff but i find it frustrating how much it feels like the way that people talk about and and fucking mark fisher i think contributed to this i'm sorry mark Fisher. (laughs) this idea that like this kind of culture as having an impact basically ended at some point maybe in the 90s and by the 2000s you had people just replaying or or remixing or whatever like addicted to nostalgia and i i don't really think that's true because i think nostalgia is like 
always been a part of i think it's a willfully ignorant take yeah nostalgia has always been a part of music but also that is ignoring i think a lot of the bands that weren't really doing that yeah and i i think we should allow for the possibility of the fact that some of these artists are actually really important and influential and even though they aren't lionized by the music industry i mean a lot of it really just has to do with the music industry like the music industry is in a more like nascent phase or what nascent however you, you nascent. pronounce that fuck yes was in a more nascent phase with people like lou reed and iggy pop and bowie and they intersected more with mainstream music obviously so that has a lot to do with it and well it was also like that like rock and roll was a young art form like it kind of feels like like how the 80s and 90s era of video games is treated because it was young yeah so by default they are innovators and it's it's like it's history because that's how it started and it's associated with particular moments in time very strongly. But I, I think that's it's so frustrating to any artist who's working in a place where it's like you put so much effort into making something and then everyone's like, oh, well, you know, times aren't great now. You know, like no one wants to put out this thing. No one. It's like, fuck you. I did this. You know, you didn't. <laughs> it's so frustrating to like in this landscape where you know that it's diminishing returns to some extent with the audience level and the amount of acclaim and just the idea that people consistently echo i mean this is why i wouldn't want to do a podcast about music of the 60s or 70s or maybe even 80s or 90s to some extent even though we do talk about 90s music yeah well the 60s is boring and also doesn't have a lot of like album this is something we ran into a lot in desert island discourse 60s the album as we think of it and talk about them was not as much of a thing so a lot of albums are just singles there's a lot of important music in the 60s, and I mean, you can talk about things like, you know, Frank Zappa, Captain Beefheart, Velvet Underground, etc., who are, like, important artists who are doing something strange and unusual, weren't like anything before them. But also, so much has already been written about it and, and spoken yeah. about it. Like, it's, there's, it's not interesting to me to talk about that like it's already settled everyone's yeah. already decided that this is important and, and influential and part of the the challenge of doing a podcast about indie music where everything is so associated with this particular aesthetic that pitchfork helped propagate is disentangling that and admitting that some of this stuff can actually be as important even though it didn't have the resources or like the sort of boomer nostalgia industry feeding it if that makes sense yeah although i think we'll see a, a millennial nostalgia industry come back and, and do a lot with this as we've seen from like the people trying to make indie sleaze a thing which yeah it, that stuff sucks it man. sucks and it never was but that's what kitsch works for creating the new canon out of the the ashes of the old but but there is something there, like, in that it is diminishing returns because an artist like Shushu can never occupy a mainstream discourse in the way that something like Velvet Underground was. Because just the general state of cultural industries are so weighted around a particular time and particular image where they had more of a, a central part in this idea of, like, what... In, in this idea of being attached to history or whatever... I also think music journalism was just different. Yeah. Like it changed. It changed and it functioned very differently in the aughts than it did, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And It's frustrating to have an artist like this and every fucking narrative is like, oh, they're underrated. 
oh, they're underrated or whatever, you know, like they're not attached. Like we can't talk about more stuff than that, you know, of like, oh, I don't know. Anyway. The, the point is that Shushu is an amazing band who is great and I love them. And I think a lot of people love them. And I think they are definitely influential. I think you can't listen to like the modern era of such like abrasive, unabashedly like queer and vulnerable and loud and messy electronic music and not credit Shushu with some of that. Yeah. Again, that, that would feel like a willfully ignorant take that, you know, it's what happens when a band is extremely original and has such an effect on people. Shushu were big. If you went to a Shushu concert, like I've never seen such, the only other time I've seen fans like get that feral at a show was at like a liar show. Hmm. Um, or maybe, the, maybe like an early animal collective show, but like Shushu, like people fucking love Shushu. It's true. Hello. Hey! You know, I was thinking, because you mentioned Perfume Genius about, like, other, like, modern Shuju-inspired thing, and I remember when Baths came out with that second album, Obsidian, thinking, like, this is Shushu as fuck. <laughs> I don't know Baths very well at all. He's He's got a similar blend, especially on Obsidian, a similar blend of, like, nerdy, queer messiness. Mm. Um, and... I, I remember he did like a remix of like one, I think he did a remix of one of the songs from uh, uh, Yuri on Ice, like that guy. Oh yeah, I always got annoyed uh, with that name because it isn't because Yuri is like it's not yeah it's, it's like lesbian. It's about gay gay men. That's the opposite of yeah. Yuri. Yeah, that's like that's false advertising. Absolutely. Same with Yuri Camp. <laughs> it is funny. I. I mentioned Shushu to my friend, and my friend's like, Shushu sounds like passenger of shit. <laughs> Do you know what passenger of shit is? No, what? It's like an outsider artist. I could sort of see it. It's like noise ch- chiptune mm. kind of stuff. The song that my friend linked me is called Staple Tapeworms Onto My Penis, if that gives you a good idea. I see. The other thing I was thinking of is like with this blend of sort of pop instincts and a weird experimental self-sabotaging is also going to be a big thing when we finally talk about Ether Teeth. Oh, yeah. In a different way. But... In a different way, and I think that that album blends it better. Whereas Shushu, yeah. it feels like... I like A Promise more than Ether Teeth, but they're they're both good albums. Well, I, I like A Promise more than Ether Teeth, too, because A Promise partitions it out, but I think Ether Teeth is a more coherent album. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely more coherent. Yeah. As a result okay. of kind of blending those things. Um, Anyways, this is all ancillary material. <laughs> yeah, I'll include it or not include it. This is for know. the B side. Yeah, <laughs> which we probably won't do. No. Okay, so I want to read just the blurb from The Best New Music because I happen to have it up here. So it is interesting. A Promise was one of the early Best New Musics. 
along with the Soft Pink Truth and Deerhoof, you know, both South Bay artists, include and Deerhoof's Apollo is actually also on Five RC, so mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting. Few bands have caused as great a stir in the independent music world as Shoo Shoo on the basis of sheer weirdness. And though virtually guaranteed to be unlike anything you've ever heard, lines can be drawn back to Joy Division, The Smiths, and David Bowie's Berlin Trilogy. As we've seen, there are a lot more influences than that, but that's the kind of... And the actual review gets into it. I, I actually think Chris Ott wrote it, and I, I actually like Chris Ott as a writer a lot, and I think it's actually a really good review. <laughs> okay. If only musically. Vocally, Shoo Shoo are an entirely different experience. Frontman Jamie Stewart sings, speaks, mumbles, and screams with all the tension, frailty, and hysteria of a recklessly homicidal outpatient. While the music, a chaotic blend of post-punk and seemingly improvisational experimentation, lends further imbalance to the anarchy. Certainly not for everyone, but definitely one of the strangest and most curiously compelling records you're bound to hear this year. Can't say I disagree with that, um... No, it's great. But do you want to read a little bit from the review? Sure. We all live in pain. Maddening depression is as debilitating as cancer. It's just a question of which you're cursed to lose, your mind or your body. Shushu operate on the precept that pain is relative, life is as meaningless as you make it, and that no matter how far you take it, sex, drugs, rock and roll, if you're still breathing, you could have done more. These new romantics also face down the contradiction that tripped up the last generation. As long as you're alive, you're a liar. It goes into a paragraph all about Ian Curtis's suicide. And then, Shushu are plugged into a morbidity only hinted at by lipstick goths, a theatric, obnoxious self-obsession approaching the club kids that ran amok in early 90s New York though thankfully they've yet to tackle Couture. Bassist Corey McCulloch lost his mother some years ago and was so shaken by it, he put a sticker on Shushu's first album announcing her death to the world. For anyone suspicious of that move, or as unimpressed by the formless knife play LP in wow. Chapel of China... <laughs> wow. I know. Why are people so down on knife play? It's one of their best albums. It's absolutely one of their best albums. I'll never understand it. Uh, Chapel of the Chimes EP, which is good. Chapel of the Chimes is a place I've been too many times, by the way. A great place in Oakland. I assume named after that place. Um, almost, almost certainly. Yeah. The latter featuring an appallingly trite rendition of Joy Division's sacrosanct finale ceremony. Uh, no, that's a great cover. It's a great cover. and Daphne actually said that they played it on their most recent show and that everyone was very happy and very emotional about it that they played it. As they should. It. Yeah. It's great. I also don't understand the idea that A Promise would be a more coherent album than Knife Play, but A Promise delivers an intellectually and emotionally definite demand for reconsideration. Constantly alternating between a shit-eating, I'm not even getting into the stories that circulate about this deviant, grand... This deviant being Jamie Stewart? Indeed. Oh, okay. Grand. And a crazed stare, daring you to dare him to jump. Singer Jamie Stewart tries to concoct the perfect lure, a know-it-all pedigree that's broad enough in its drama to draw in kids whose daddies never understood. That feels like as pitchfork and encapsulation of Juju as we'll ever get. I don't know. I don't know about this review, actually. <laughs> no, I mean, there's some stuff like when he's talking about Walnut House uh, and uses the R word. <laughs> well, so does Jamie. Well, but uses it to refer to what is the best line, which is I am the dumbest bitch on the planet. <laughs> oh, yeah. True. I guess I can't hate on anyone for using the R word because I did actually use it in a song when I was 18. So I still... We might be talking about... Are we talking about the same R word? Uh... I think so. Okay. Where is it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Same okay, R good. word. Got it. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it was not it was not non grata at the time, but yeah, I it was, it's a bad song and it was stupid that I that I used it, but it was more around at that time, right? But it, like even at the time, I knew it was like I probably shouldn't use that word, but anyway, yeah. Oh yes, I want to talk about the story of the album cover. Yeah. So this is from an interview from 2003, around when this album came out, in Pitchfork, by Matt LeMay, another one of our favorites. Indeed. <laughs> the guy who wrote the, the Liz Fair and the And You Will Know Us by the Trail of Dead uh, reviews. Okay. So this is kind of long. So this is Jamie. About two years ago, I had this little recording studio. I had wanted to take this trip to Vietnam, and I wanted to think of the ways I could save up enough money to do it. So I had a bunch of recording equipment, and I basically just opened a recording studio in my house and recorded all the really fucking awful punk rock and ska bands in the neighborhood. So I saved up a ton of money, and then I took this trip by myself to go to Vietnam. I was going by myself, so whatever. I thought it would be funny if I took this little rubber baby with me and I put the baby in different places and took pictures of it. I thought it would be a fun and possibly interesting slash disturbing. By the end of the trip, I was staying in Hanoi and I had heard that there was this really famous gay cruising lake in Hanoi and I was like, oh fuck man, what's the gay cruising scene in Hanoi all about? I can't miss this. So I was walking around the lake and I get cruised by this guy and I'm sort of freaked out, you know. Culturally, I don't understand what's appropriate and not appropriate for this kind of thing. And getting cruised in any situation is dicey, let alone an opposite hemisphere. So I'm kind of talking to this guy, and he's like, want to go to a gay bar? And I'm like, oh, fuck, man, a gay bar in Hanoi? I've got to check it out. And he's like, okay, tell me where it is, and we'll go. And I was like, shit, this guy doesn't know anything. At this point, we've been in a dark area. We go into the light. I realized that it was basically a younger, homeless guy. His clothes were really ripped up and shitty looking, and I started empathizing. I mean, this wasn't just somebody trying to get laid. It's a young hustler kid, and I'm obviously really broke, and if he's hustling white tourists, then his life isn't going to be that great. So uh, he kept asking me to take him back to my hotel and fuck him and give him money, and I was like, no way, that's not going to happen. And he just would not let up on asking me to take him back to my hotel. So I realized that he's just like super desperate and poor. So I get this very questionable idea into my head of how can I give this guy some money, not have sex with him, but also have this totally fucking weird and possibly very wrong kind of experience. I asked him, I've been doing a lot of pictures on the trip. How about we go back to this hotel room and I take some naked pictures of you holding this baby? And he's like, yeah, okay, whatever. I could have said to him, let's go play basketball. And I'm feeling really squirrely and weird about this, you know? Am I exploiting this guy? Is this art? Whatever. Maybe I'm doing something good because he'll get a bunch of money and he doesn't have to do something that could be potentially unsafe. But will this be totally humiliating to him? How is he going to feel about this? But sometimes you got to do the wrong thing. (laughs) So we go back to my hotel room and the whole thing lasts about five minutes. And he asked me if he can take a shower and he takes off his clothes and he's got scars and cuts and burns all over him. He's obviously lived a shitty fucking hard life. And I start taking pictures of him holding the baby and he starts stripping and taking off his clothes. I told him I was going to use them for something eventually and he didn't seem to care at all. And a lot of the pictures he was trying to look really, really sexy And it was so many weird feelings. It was really touching that he was just trying to do his job, you know. Right now, my job is a sex worker. And I'm going to try to do my fucking hard job, even though I'm with a total fucking weird-ass guy who wants to take pictures of me with this baby. And at the same time, here's this guy who's maybe 20 and obviously been beat to shit out a bunch of times. 
This is how his life turned out. Really hard to watch and sometimes just fucking hilarious. Here's this fucking naked dude trying to look hot holding this baby. You know, it was really confusing and really weird. And then afterwards, I paid him way more money than I said I would because I felt like an asshole and really guilty and weird about the whole thing. And he, like, immediately asked for three times more money. He went into hustler mode right away. And I can't really blame the guy. I didn't really have any more, but I gave him tons and tons. Amazingly, the dude's name was Hong, which is kind of ironic and horrible, maybe. Um, but yeah, that's the story. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I knew parts of that. I didn't know the whole thing. Yeah. It's a famous photograph, so I felt like it was worth reading all of that. For sure. I do like this interview from 2003 because they also talk about just the hating indie rock dudes, <laughs> the, the sort of indie rock cliches saying that that's been around a long time. And you can tell that sort of comes from the fact that they have, you know, family who worked in the music industry and, right. you know, and they've seen the the good and bad sides of it, I guess. But there's also a funny quote about Electro Clash that I, I wanted to read for a second before we move on, because um, we were talking about it the last episode. I'm also realizing right now, I confused Chris Ott with somebody else. Chris Ott's a terrible writer. I was thinking of Brandon Stosey. <laughs> oh, Brandon Stosey did do uh, one of the Shushu yeah. interviews. That was his, It's pretty good, and, and I enjoy a lot of his reviews. Yeah. No, this Chris Ott review was not very good. No, and Chris Ott in general has terrible... I just... I remember he gave, like, I think the Comlag EP, like, a five. <laughs> Com Wait, what was Comlag? Was that Radio a Radiohead? Yeah, Radiohead. Okay. I don't remember that EP at all. It's good. Okay. Maybe I should listen to it. All right. He says, yeah, I think not looking at things is a reaction to genuinely being in pain. The whole fucking Electro Clash party was, I think, people being so fucking freaked out that they needed a fucking party for a while. Like, wow, I cannot look outside what's, without seeing somebody's life being totally destroyed. I need to get out and wear some stupid-ass clothes and get down for a while, or my brain is going to melt. I don't know. I wish people could do that and also try to push things creatively. Sometimes people just have to get a drunk a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> I just thought that was a funny quote. Oh, man. <laughs> Uh, I get it. It's funny, like, we talk about how a lot of post-9-11 music felt like it was trying to escape, felt like it wasn't really grappling with the time, but the more that we've, like, done this podcast and, you know, we had the Boards of Canada album, the Dialect album, and really the first several Shoo Shoo albums, I realized that there were definitely people making stuff about that it just like was you know quote unquote underground music or it wasn't as explicit that that was what it was a lot of the time so yeah i don't know it's just an interesting thing to think about because i think that's the narrative that that gets pushed uh, about like you know everyone thought that the protest music for the iraq war was going to be so great and then it was the worst music ever made when it existed yeah it was either non-existent or terrible Oh, just yeah not good but on the other hand you have shushu and dialect and you know artists that are doing stuff that is influenced by that and in response to that and honestly a lot of like the hip-hop and electronic music of that era is, is it's a lot more boundary pushing than the indie rock yeah yeah so that's the story of the album cover we can get into talking about the songs now by the way i did want to say that the name shushu comes from the movie shushu the sent down girl yes which is a bleak film. A bleak film. And so the idea behind the film is like worse and worse things keep happening to this girl. And uh -huh. there is kind of no 
positive ending and i think that's the idea behind shushu and so many of their songs it the, the movie has big todd salons energy where it just feels like what are the worst things we can do to a person and you know that movie was directed by a person named joan chen who is famous for something else do you know what it is no she is josie in twin peaks no way <laughs> yeah josie the director was josie in twin peaks damn what a twist. I had no idea. Especially because uh, Shushu later did a Music of Twin Peaks album. Yes, which is uh, not bad, although it's not the kind of thing I would ever want. I think cover albums are bad, generally. I like it for what it is. I mean, they, they also did a Nina Simone cover album as well. but Yes, which I also don't care for. <laughs> yeah, their covers can be good or bad. Their covers are, are pretty... I do like the their remixed and covered album where like other bands are covering them and they got some really good remixes on there. Oh, I've never heard it. What's it called? It's like Shushu remixed and covered. It's got uh, uh, like okay. Sunset Rubdown doing Apostat Commander. Um, it's got... Yeah, I should listen to that. It's good. It's good. Like the best of that kind of thing from them, in my opinion. But, you know, again, their, their cover of Ceremony is great. Like, they've done, like, great covers. It's just pretty wildly ranging. Yeah. And I will say I was extremely upset when Twin Peaks A Return came out and Shushu was not one of the performances. Oh, God, it would have been so good. I will also say, actually, in terms of their covers, I it's kind of bad and ridiculous. I love their cover of Under Pressure, though. Yeah, but it's with the Sex Pest, man. It's with a Sex Pest, which hurts it a lot. At the time, it was very funny because what a dumb person to duet this song with yeah <laughs> and now yes it is in fact quite tainted by by sex pests but i don't know man it just it's so galling i love it anyways yeah moving on but yeah i think this album has a similar problem to women as lovers where i think it starts with like maybe the two best songs on it well i think the last song but We'll get to that. I think there's other very great songs, but like the, these like first two songs said like a standard that these are, the rest of the album isn't going to mess with. Yeah, these are iconic. These first two songs are definitely iconic Shushu songs. Mm -hmm. The first one is Sad Pony Gorilla Girl, which is an adaptation of a song that is on accordion solo. Called Sad Girl. Called Sad Girl. And I, I honestly kind of like that version better. <laughs> I go back and forth, you know, it, it's a mood thing on like, really the distinction for me is like, do I have the patience for the little noise freak out? Yeah, I think when I first was getting into this album, I couldn't get past the slapping butt cheeks. Yeah, which is valid. But like, I think how understated the song is, is like really, I love when Jamie gets like, you know, Jamie Stewart's really good at extremes. And they're obviously very good at the like loud and, you know, wild extreme. They're also really good at like being extreme in a quiet way, like quiet and still embarrassingly emotional. And so all of like the quivering and the guitar line that comes in, the electric guitar line that comes in, I think it works really well. I think as a pop song, the Tin and the Swear Jar works better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, from what they said in an interview, it was adapted because they both liked the song, but felt like the way that they adapted it for Ten in the Swear Jar 
I'm talking about Jamie and Corey McCulloch. That 10 in the swear jar version didn't really reflect like the mood of the lyrics, which I think is true. Mm -hmm. Although that's not necessary for me. I mean, like there's a whole tradition of upbeat songs with sad lyrics, but you know. No, it's true. But I do love like how afraid Jamie sounds singing this and then how like defiant by the end. It's interesting. Say that I am your secret love. He said to be quiet, but I want to tell the whole world. I like my neighborhood, I like my gun Driving my little car, I'm your girl and I'll protect you I like my neighborhood, I like my gun Driving my little car, I'm your girl and I'll protect you By the way, the story is so... Like, this is actually based on a real story. Which I had no idea, and I've never fully understood the song, and, and now is like, oh, okay, that's fairly simple. <laughs> yeah, so they lived, uh, I think in that, that awful squat that they lived in, uh, one of their neighbors was a younger girl who was dating an older woman. Who was married. Uh, yeah, who was married, and like, from what it sounds like, pretty clearly like using this younger girl. And mm-hmm. apparently... Some of the things that are said, like, you say I'm loca because I'm your girl, you say I'm stupid because I'm your girl, are things that, that Jamie and Corey, like, heard them saying, these two women. So, yeah, pretty sad story. And I always think about it in the context of, like, I don't know if this was in the Bay Area or elsewhere, but the I love my neighborhood, I love my gun, drive my little car, I am a girl and I will protect you. Like, there's somebody that I know in particular in Oakland who I feel like there's, like, this whole class of, like, anarchist kind of people in Oakland who are like really into guns for some reason like it's a it's a whole thing yeah leftist gun nuts are a whole thing yeah especially in Oakland because I think a lot of white anarchists think that they're being like Black Panthers but anyway uh... (laughs) 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 anyway the the point is I feel like I know this person you know even though I don't know them yeah I don't know It, it definitely yeah, I think it hits different depending on the kind of environment you're in. Texas is a gun culture in a very different way. There's something sweetly tragic about that chorus, and I don't really know how to pinpoint it. Mm-hmm. But that I'm your girl and I'll protect you, like, ah, oh, that hits. Yeah, so this has a very quiet, I mean, it starts the, like, there's very little percussion. I don't know if there's any percussion in this song, actually. There's the ass slapping. Oh, there's the ass slapping. That's not really percussion. That's just a noise break. Listen, (laughs) we just have, you and I have different definitions here and that's fine. It's not on any kind of beat. Well, you know, it's a, it's free. It's polymetric. I get that. <laughs> That's the contemporary classical side of Shushu. No, there's no percussion on it. It's, it's just an acoustic, lovely little song. It's just quiet guitar. There's like a, a layered electric guitar. There's a sort of these like synth sounds, apparently a fairly like crappy synth. Uh, there's an interview with Jamie where he talks about the making of this album said they had a Yamaha DX21, which I think they say, which I think Corey was 
the only person in the entire world who could get some decent sounds out of it and some other garbage synth that I don't think anyone feels fondness for now. So. Yeah, the Yamaha DX, that's like an FM synth, which like FM is a notoriously finicky way to make synth sounds. But yeah, so they have synth sounds throughout the album. And that's really about it other than, you know, the... <laughs> the the break of ass slapping and and jamie sings in a very sort of quiet restrained jamie kind of has two main modes which Mm -hmm. is this very sad very it's quavering yeah quivering almost over emoted definitely over emotive they're always over emoting yeah (laughs) that's half the fun (laughs) i mean jamie has admitted in interviews being a basically like a drama queen an extremely emotional person and you can obviously get that from listening to any shushu song yes it's some of the best best parts about it but yeah it's uh you say i'm loca because i'm your girl you say i'm stupid because i'm your girl you leave me out on the steps you dress me up like a boy so i think that is referring to like disguising mm-hmm. this girl like as a boy so that they don't or at least that's what genius suggests right but whatever you say be quiet, but I want to tell the whole world. So obviously, like, this person is keeping their affair super hush-hush. Well, they're married, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Just a sad song. It's sad to be in that situation where somebody is, you know, you're having an affair with an older person. They're clearly taking advantage of you. But I think what I love is that it, there's a level of, like, empathy and a level of capturing the vulnerability in a bad situation here. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm thinking of Todd Salons because they brought him up with regards to the cover art. I think Todd Salons is awful because he's he's not empathetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just displays bad situations and is like, aha, isn't that bad? What I love about Shushu is there's always this sense of like this empathy and this vulnerability and the way these like people, I almost said characters, but as you said, they're almost always real people. These people are portrayed. It's also almost never like feels like linear or narrative. It's like it feels like snippets of conversations and snippets of thoughts. Mm-hmm. and it feels very like emotionally true or emotionally coherent even when it's not narratively coherent yeah so like even before i knew like what this song was about you know it seemed like kind of there's no through line like plot wise but like on an emotional level it feels very honest i think that's true of apostat as well i don't know i think that's one of the things that like shushu is lyrically best at and they're also when they're talking about the arrangements not fitting the lyrics of the, the last band I think one of the reasons I think about lyrics with Shushu when I almost never do ever elsewhere is because they tend to have a do really well in like, how do I in my music capture the vibe of the words I'm saying and vice versa. Mm -hmm. I love that. To an almost absurdly exaggerated degree. Oh, absolutely. But they're, they're going for it. And like, if you, it was some interview line that I can't remember, but like where they're like, you know, if you go for it all the time, sometimes you'll look ridiculous, but you'll also hit those moments where going all the way out and being that melodramatic was exactly what was needed to capture that moment. Yeah, you don't want to be, it's better to be accused of being ridiculous than it is to be accused of being mid and boring. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, gosh, it's so good. But yeah, I think there's that self-sabotaging thing with like the noise breakdown which doesn't, I don't know if it's necessarily additive. I guess there's a certain atmospheric quality to it. Yeah, I guess trying to convey... It comes at a good moment when when she's like, I'm not going to be quiet and I'm going to tell the whole block and then that happens, like that feels effective. Yeah, it feels like it, a, abusive, obviously. Mm-hmm. Conveying the abusive nature of the relationship. Right, but, you know, if you're into Sad Pony, Gorilla Girl as a pop song, it does feel like it's weird. 
Yeah, it's a good beginning. I I don't know. It just like I tend to get the other version in my head more just because it's it's more catchy when they have the fucking accordion. Well, they have the accordion, but there's also like brass in that song. There is, yeah, yeah. It's mo- more amped up. If they ever covered it live, I'd want to hear a version like that. A real Lumineers vibe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Real real shanty vibes from from that version. Yeah. <laughs> Ahead of their time. Of course, as always. Uh, the next song is one of the best Shoo Shoo songs ever. One of my favorite songs of all time, easily. <laughs> Apostat Commander. Like, I was listening to this today and like, the bright sunshine of, like, a springing Chicago afternoon, and I still almost cried. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even when I didn't listen to this album a lot, I would always put on this song over and over and over again. It's so good. Because it is just so affecting, and it captures what Shushu does so perfectly. It starts off so quiet, like such a, a minimal beat. Although you have the like weird reverberations of like what sound like a broken synth just making weird noises. Yeah, they're, they're, it's like a, a a pad going off at random almost, or like going around the stereo field. And and again, like Jamie's singing so quiet, like you can barely hear it. It's an extremely like minimal beat, kind of like a. Mm-hmm part of a house beat except it's just like the bass it's just the kick yeah it's yeah. just the kick part of a house beat do 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 you know and you have a pretty soft like gentle sounding synth sound that accompanies their singing yeah, it's real low pass filtered. Like, there's not a lot of like treble in the early part of the song, where it's like. It's not reverbed at all. Like, this isn't really. It's a very dry. I mean, there are parts that aren't, I wouldn't describe as dry on this album, but yeah, like, the minimal parts are very, very dry here. Oh, oh. And then like it hits like what will eventually be like the climax of the song but at first it's like even quieter yeah <laughs> the all that you left it starts with there's some strings the all that you left you left for someone all of this hurt that's wilted off all this relief it's the oddest thing oh my god oh my god oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> i get that i get that bridge in my head like constantly oh all the time but also like when the song explodes at like the uh the chen could talk me down or he'll never come and uh way why could talk me down like oh my god yes it's the juju thing of like really harsh sense playing very melodic lines as means of catharsis is so effective yeah i like brian the vampire a lot too for a similar reason the song on fabulous muscles yeah uh, pink city does a similar thing later on here but yeah the, this like true it's very harshly melodic black dresses do this in a really cool way nowadays mm. but really harshly melodic and it just feels cathartic even before you know they start screaming <laughs> <laughs> but yes a lot of shushu songs just have names that are kind of cryptically dropped but they're usually people that jamie knows in one way or another or that you know members of the band know mm-hmm. in this case it's just jamie's 
kind of making reference to the fact that all the people who would miss them when they're gone, because as you might have guessed, like from listening to the song, it's about suicide. Yes. This chance to drop off. Yeah, it's one of the most obvious songs in terms of if you listen to it, you kind of know what is being talked about. Which is like, it's one of the the first like Shushu songs that like really got me because like, you know, hearing it as like a suicidal teen, like, oh, <laughs> you know, because it's not pro-suicide, but <laughs> um, it all, it explores both like the pain of leaving people behind and like the idea of the relief of being gone Yeah, in a way that feels like human and real. Well, and from what I understand, like Jamie said that the this period of these first few albums and around this album in particular was the worst period of their life and they were considering mm-hmm. suicide daily. <laughs> so this is not like they're coming from a place and this was recorded in a shitty house with housemates that they hated. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's all right in it. There's no like, there's no space from that. Like their dad just died. It's It's all right there. So I think people who are in really dark places maybe can relate to this album so much because it it literally is someone, you know, or a group of people making it from within that place, like very much in the midst of it, which is kind of amazing to think about that they, I know that that also kind of explains some of the bizarre and self-destructive aspects of Shushu, but that they could even come together for such a perfectly structured song. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's also the idea that like, when you leave stuff behind, you just leave it somebody else has to deal with your bullshit right and you know they were dealing with that obviously with their dad and they said that for years for that they were mad about their dad's suicide like pretty much every day like it it just really hurt them deeply obviously yeah so but yeah the it's soft there's some strings and then when the the second part hits the chen he'll never come it it hits really hard yeah. some like heavy industrial beats there's no build it's either very quiet or extremely loud yeah which is again very effective and the singing is like hysterical on this Mm -hmm. and then eventually it it sort of ends but yeah this is a song that i've replayed a gazillion times oh there's some of the percussion like the the gamelan style percussion in there too Mm-hmm. kind of thrown in gamelan it was a much bigger thing on knife play but will always be a thing on with shushu yeah not much else to say about the song what, easily one of the best shushu songs and yeah i i would say one of the best songs of the early 2000s if nothing else absolutely same like i i again one of my personal like favorite songs ever made and then we get to walnut house walnut house which is the worst song on the album not it's not bad it's not bad it's just not anything it's just boring i mean there is the line i am the dumbest bitch on the planet yes and also my leather daddy dancing very near like a sweetheart would hurting my butthole like a sweetheart would (laughs) you know they're saying the things we're all thinking 
Yeah, I mean, Shushu is very explicit about everything, so we don't have to, like, read subtext like we did into uh, all the gay subtext in Sufjan Stevens. Yeah, no, this is... Jamie says what they mean. Yeah, this is all text. My leather daddy dancing very near Like a I don't know. It's funny because apparently this was based on their grandmother was dying in a, a nursing home called Walnut House, and it's it, apparently it was a terrible place. And the "Don't worry, mom" is is them saying to their mom like, "Don't worry, you know, like I'm the I'm sorry that your mom is dying, but it it'll be okay." But also, I guess thrown in there is talking about because they were making questionable decisions, of, mm. let's say hookups or or life stuff. So I think that's part of it. I don't know why those two things are combined in the way that they are, but but yeah, apparently that's it's kind of jumbled together, I guess. And this is one of the like there's a piano, there's some kind of like it is kind of like a modern classical thing. They have I don't know, songs like Andong or Tonight and Today on which is the worst song on Knife Play. What uh, Tonight and Today or and Andong? Tonight and Tonight and Today is. Okay, good. Cuz Andong's great. This <laughs> kind of like have minimal piano texture, but it's not like really a lot of melodic content. It just kind of wanders. Yeah, and and for those Shushu songs, I feel like sequencing is everything. Yeah. Like I like them better on like Knife Play or La Foray than I do here and say fabulous muscles because of like on this and, and fabulous muscles they feel sequenced in such a way as to fuck with you <laughs> i think intentionally this is put earlier on in the album yeah to let you know that this is not going to be a pop album that you're going to have to deal with some experimental stuff and you're going to have to you know be okay with that basically it's very intentional yeah i have gotten used to the song and like it more because of you know some of the lines being very ridiculous and also the the part at the end with the the heavy percussion where he says don't worry mom don't worry mom even though it doesn't have really much to do with the rest of the song that like hysterical freak out on the kinds of symbols i don't know exactly what kind of percussion that is but um they sound like i don't know like broken chinas or something kind of like tuned weird yeah something like that Oh, it's a little tit mouse. Ah, a little chickadee. A little ruddy duck. (laughs) Jamie really likes to do that to like put cutesy imagery in with the gross, horrible stuff or just the off-putting stuff in order to make you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, I love it. It's kind of cute and it's, it's funny. Yeah. In one of the interviews, they said that a lot of their lyrics were influenced, that they were really into reading about a lot of famous historical atrocities. <laughs> and a lot of their lyrics are just influenced by that. And that is kind of tied in together with their own personal experiences. So cool. That's where stuff like Suha comes from, from Knife Play. Or... Right. God, Suha is such a good song. Yeah. Better song than this. But yeah. <laughs> I like the freak out at the end a little too long. Weirdly, I, I don't know. 
I don't understand the long songs on this album. I don't understand why they're long. <laughs> no, I mean, that's true for most long shushu songs. Because, <laughs> like, I, I would have gone a seven minute Apistat Commander yes, or a seven minute Ian Curtis wish list instead of a six minute Fast Car or a, a five minute Walnut House, but whatever. No, although I do like six minute Fast Car. <laughs> Fine. Let me get there. But yeah, the next song is 20,000 Deaths for Eidolon Gonzalez, 20,000 Deaths for uh, Jamie Peterson. Peterson. So apparently these people have nothing to do with the content of the song. Eidolon Gonzalez is somebody that Jamie dated and apparently treated like shit or like hooked up with. And Jamie Peterson is like a percussionist, they know. But apparently it doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the song. <laughs> No, I mean, this is one of those, like, shitposty Jamie Stewart jokes. I always misread it as Elian Gonzalez when I first... Oh, no. Because <laughs> my brain didn't know what to make of those names. I was like, "What? <laughs> who are these people? I like this. It has a similar... There's a lot of quiet on this album. Yeah. This very, like, spare... With the synth textures, like, the very gentle... Like you said, the high-end cut out of the synth... Which I, I kind of like. I mean, they'll come back to it in a more acoustic way on La Foray, but like, I like the sort of textury mood pieces. I think because for the most part, you know, with the exception of like Walnut House and, and such, like, they don't overstay their welcome for me. Yeah. This doesn't have a fully like developed melody line. I mean, the, the instrument parts are developed. There's the main like boom, 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 boom. And then there's like a higher synth part with like occasional distorted synths in there. And sometimes there's like just random ass percussion thrown in, like is often done in Shushu where they're just like, I'm just going to make a noise here. Yes. But it feels much more like kind of on the grid about what's happening. I imagine they, they must have used Pro Tools for a lot of this because Jamie said that their dad taught them how to use Pro Tools. Their dad was actually apparently involved with the development of Pro Tools. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. In some capacity. I don't know exactly. But yeah, it feels more on a grid with like weird stuff happening around it. Uh, sort of like with Apistat Commander. But the most melodic parts are honestly in the synths. Especially like later, there's like a, a high up or higher up synth that goes like, I can't, I can't do the part, but I'll, I can put in a clip. No, but we'll, we'll play a clip. Yeah. I, which is my favorite part of the song. I really like that sort of driving. Yeah. some drum machine a little bit like dance music e but yeah it's, yeah it's rattly you know it's noisy and rattly i have no idea what the lyrics are about uh. there's a suggestion that there's a reference to jamie stewart's father and like the suicide but also some person that their father had like impregnated or was involved with like early on and that might have to do with the cherry cherry while your friend killed her baby line but yeah i don't know it's all the refuse of of shushu it's all just like the chaos 
splatter on the wall some of their lyrics yeah not a, not all of their lyrics are about things some of them are just kind of fucking around which is fine and i you know i think it's funny and interesting yeah but it's also like it's not a standout i would say i think the synth lines are really what make this and then jamie said that cory mcculloch was actually really good at coming up with melodic synth lines that were very distorted so maybe he was responsible somewhat for those but who knows I, i'm sure it was a collaboration between all the band members but that's what i like it for that the jamie's lines like the melodic line in the voice isn't much to talk about it's just like still pretty softly sung like the Mm -hmm. Jamie apparently has a very complicated relationship with their voice which is not surprising because I I think they have a a complicated relationship with their gender in general um, from what I understand but yeah although I you know Jamie Stewart I think does have also one of the best voices in in terms of like emoting what is necessary for the song yeah well it's not tuneless like he, he hits the notes yeah yeah. I don't know. It's effective. I love an effective voice. But next we have Pink City, uh, and this really hits you in the face right at the beginning. Yeah, but I love it. I love Pink City. really heavy distorted line sort of like again with brian the vampire has a similar thing i like that song a little bit better because there isn't much i don't really understand where the song goes melodically or in terms of the it it doesn't quite make sense to me musically if that makes like the the opening synth line makes sense to me but like a lot of the other stuff like jamie is singing in this really weird low voice that's kind of distorted it's like speak singing. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel that way about the shin, so I get it. I, I kind of like the chaotic quality of it because I think it fits the instrumentation in an interesting way. And I don't think it's it's never like off key. No. Right? It's never like dissonant necessarily. It's, it, it works. And it's so propulsive that I'm kind of fine following with it wherever it's going. So from this interview about this album, the interviewer asked, how are the less structured tracks like this song, Pink City, composed for the record? This song sounds like someone having a million different mood swings mid-composition. Jamie says, I was pretty out of my mind at the time, so it's entirely possible that that's what happened. (laughs) Those were very dark days. Very dark days. Yeah, this will just sound melodramatic, but it was without a doubt one of the most difficult and worst times of my life. It was a pretty miserable existence. But then there's also mention that this was inspired by a book by British war reporter Anthony Lloyd writing about the atrocities of the Balkans War. Speaking of the uh, books about atrocities. Yeah, it's like a lot of fragments of ideas, right? Because there's like a tin in the swear jar couple of lines. and Yeah, there's a couple lines from Hot Carl and... Housequake 2, two songs by Ten in the Swear Jar. Right. I have always liked, though, the sound is faster in water than it is in air. A hydrophone will let you know faster that your grandma and your niece are shot dead. <laughs> that feels so shoo-shoo to me. Well, this is actually kind of where I get the Velvet Underground comparison with like, if you think of this album as kind of being like white light, white heat, where there is like occasional like lurid, cryptic, historical imagery 
that is meant to just unsettle you but doesn't exactly have a specific meaning that's something that like lou reed does in his lyrics and some of that for sure or or like late scott walker yeah yeah the epizootics epizootics yes epizootics or yes take that accidentally in the bollocks for a start or the fucking the cockfighter the yeah i don't know i love it man we'll do a scott walker up it'll be great (laughs) Like the use of the phrase boogie town seems very menacing in in a shoo shoo song. It's your only chance to leave boogie town. <laughs> After this moment, there will be no escape from boogie town. This is a very ominous song, actually, just because of the way that the combination of that kind of weird synth riff that keeps repeating, the fact that the arrangement doesn't make a lot of sense, and the way that Jamie sings in this like kind of low, distorted voice. Maybe the most like unsettling song. For sure. Uh, or at least like in a sort of ambiguous way. I love Chaotic Jusha. You know, I've always really liked Unless You Can Hear the Axe Fall. I really like Oh My God. It had such a complicated title. Oh, Angel Guts Red Classroom. You know, I, I like it when they go. That's named after a movie, I think. Oh, is it really? Yeah. The really, I like when they kind of embrace how like this like cacophony. Mm hmm. It's a, a strange song, but you can see I. this is why I'm making the Velvet Underground comparison, because there are like definitely, I, I mean, there's also the queer thing, because Lou Reed was definitely queer. Like Lou Reed was definitely bi in the same way that Jamie is bi. For sure. I don't know. Something to think about. Next song, Sad redux Ographer. I think this might be my favorite of the slow, pretty songs. I just kind of like the mood of it. <laughs> yeah, it starts off kind of like I didn't, think much of this song at first i would skip it because it there's just a kind of an arpeggiated high up synth line and it doesn't really develop until you get further into the song even though it's only like three minutes long right and that's the thing like it doesn't keep you waiting too long and i think that that spareness makes when the strings come in work better for me yeah i really do like the part you know where they say he said it did not cost me anything and just like screams that yeah Ugh. because you don't expect it to happen like because no ramp up you've had like three kind of weirder quieter more ambiguous songs this one is a little bit more direct in the way that it makes me think more of some of the songs on knife play that are a little bit more direct for sure I made him a present It was a photograph of me I did not get it He said it did not cost me anything But this is apparently just about being attracted to a guy who's like not that interested in them and the kind of vain hope that it will lead to something that it's it's not going to. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, more direct, but apparently this was was this also I think this might have been an older song too. I'm gonna it was up. yeah, it's it's it was uh, off of a compilation. Okay. Yeah, and then the next song is Blacks. So this is this is when the kind of experimental part of this album actually really clicks for me in this song and the next song. It's a more songy version of it for sure. Yeah, with Blacks and and Brooklyn Dodgers, I think the kind of hysterical like both of those songs are feel more manic and hysterical in, in a way and like right. less soft and just it's kind of losing the plot like it's not 
this could be a song on knife play, but it's just this weirdly self-sabotaging. It is like going off the rails, like constantly throughout the song, if that makes sense. It's going off the rails, but in a very rhythmic way. Yeah. That again, it feels very industrial that way. Like the yells are very punctuate you know they're almost speak singing the lines like that's enough that's enough of me man trying you know <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> that's, that's how they said, how it said i'm not gonna try to yell no like, that's it's just that it sounded really muppety <laughs> yeah. well that's <laughs> no that's great that's perfect ship it that's jamie stewart ship it Um, no, yeah, I, I, I love Stuart when I sing like this. That's my that's my actual imitation. It's really close to the Sufjan Stevens one. Uh, the Sufjan Stevens, I was actually like singing more closer to my normal voice. No, I mean, it's you're right. It feels like more of a knife play song. Same with Brooklyn Dodgers in that the Gamelon stuff is back. A lot of like that, that pinging cymbal hit and... Yeah, it's got that industrial propulsion that I really love. And especially the first time that that's enough comes out of nowhere that you expect it after that. But the first time it's just like, ooh. Yeah. Ooh, okay, baby. Okay, Jamie. It hits this level of energy, but in a way that is unsettling and you're kind of uncomfortable with it. Yes. Like it's upbeat in a way that is wrong. <laughs> that is deeply troubling. Yeah. And it's not like, because even like Pink City sort of has a, a tightness to it, even though it's weird and structured in a way that doesn't make a lot of sense. But this feels no, like... No, but it, it doesn't surprise you like this. Like this sets an expectation and disrupts it in a way that Pink City never sets an expectation. Yeah, this just feels uh, unhinged. Yes. Well, yes. Which is what I... Sicko out the window screaming, yes, yes. This is what I love. This is what I want from Shushu. Deeply unhinged. Uh, oh, okay. Jamie says, I've had enough of this life. I think that's the line that's like whispered. I've had enough of this. I always uh, heard I've had a false life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but either way, yeah, it's unsettling. But it. I think this song and the next song do a good job of capturing what this album brings that I don't think I've heard on any other Shushu album. This just like completely falling apart, hysterical energy. There will always be bits like moving forward, you know, like uh, in Lust, You Can Hear the Axe Fall and uh, some of the wilder songs on Fabulous Muscles or, or Angel Guts. But like, for sure, like this is a, a specific era. It's less po like it's trying to do something from Knife Flay that would be a little more poppy, but it's like it's not successfully doing that. But intentionally, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. it feels more experimental in a kind of experiment in conveying a specific emotion which given the circumstances of the recording, I don't know if that was something they super intentionally did more than it was just an expression of how they felt at that particular time. But the next song is Brooklyn Dodgers. I really like this song, actually. I do too. Something about the drum beats are actually very menacing in this song. I think about this in, like, in the last song is I feel like they are bringing back a rhythmic content that hasn't been a priority on this album like it was on the last one. Mm -hmm. And they're coming, you know, towards the end of the album, which is great. Like, they're coming before two of the more 
maybe the most experimental songs on the album so it's it's a nice little anchor yeah but it's like i mean the sort of modern classical thing comes in because there's like an instrumental break with this like dancey drum beat you know it's like do 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 yeah. but the background is just this wailing chaos noise you it's know like, it's very dissonant like accordion or like a bellows organ kind of thing sound yeah but it's treated like the way the song treats it makes you think that there's going to be like a melodic line but no it's actually no. a very menacing wail the fact that it's juxtaposed with this very cool sounding percussion is very unsettling to me in a way that i really like yeah, no, I love it. Again, the, there aren't a lot of like, I almost said songs. I, I don't know if I'd call these like songy ass songs, but they have a propulsion to them that a lot of the album doesn't. Like it, this is weirdly one of the more spare like Jushu albums. Yeah. So it, it's refreshing to get something menacing and stressful. <laughs> I mean, we have soft Jamie Stewart singing, but it is juxtaposed with these very intense mm-hmm. emotions. And it's sort of like the stuff that is being dealt with earlier in the album is just coming to a head in a way that is not cathartic, but actually stuff is just getting worse, if that makes sense. Right. There's no release. There's no relief, which is kind of the a shoo-shoo staple. But um, this song apparently is also just about the fact that Jamie's brother was tired of how horrible things were going in their family, who all lived in the Bay Area at that point, and decided to move to to Brooklyn. So <laughs> that's um, it's, it's sort of like an, an over, uh, a slightly hysterical, like, are you going to leave us forever? <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe you should emotion that is being expressed but yeah really interesting song to me i don't think there's quite anything else like this song and the previous one for me that i've heard on any of their other albums which is kind of what makes this album unique to me yeah no they're great i love them love this album so much fast car but next we have fast car so this goes on too long in my opinion it does but it's such a it's so shushu it's such a weird little piss take of a cover it's so hard because every time i hear this i'm just like i i want to hear like fast car is a very well-known song it is, but that's part of what makes it work for me is like yeah i've heard fast car to death and i have a very specific expectation of what that song sounds like and it's not this yeah um at all <laughs> I do like the way that Jamie changes a few of the lyrics. Same. In deliberately clumsy ways. Like yes, when they the... say, working at Eastside San Jose Child Development Center. Which... I was going to say the delivery of that is so good. Yeah, yeah I think that's... that's actually where Jamie worked. That is where he worked, yeah. So I quit life and that's what I did. And the part where it says, you see, my old man's got a problem. He lives with prescription drugs and that's the way it is. That was Jamie's father, you know. Right. It is too long. I, I would agree with you there for sure. But I... It's funny to me. I guess I just like that it's funny. It feels like such a weird troll move. 
it's such a it's so minimal it's just like a extremely minimal like acoustic guitar when it plays the riff it almost feels mocking yeah like a parody of itself it's so no energy i mean there's parts where like strings kind of come in in the back but there's no you know because like the original fast cars is kind of you know it's like it kind of bounces between different there's some tension there melodically and it's just completely flattened out like here it's no it it doesn't feel like it's developing it just feels like it's a like jamie's almost reciting the song you know the lyrics it's maybe a bit like me and a gun ish except it's just a cover (laughs) but it's like six minutes of i just wish there were i just wish this was like four minutes long and not six minutes long no I agree. It, it overstays its welcome, but it is, it's bleak and sinister and funny. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a, a combination of feelings that is very shoo to me. Got a fast car, but is it fast enough so we can fly away? We gotta make a decision. Can leave tonight or live and die this way. My favorite shoe shoe cover even though like the only girl in the world like that's kind of a piss take too i like that cover more mm-hmm. because i feel like it it adds a an element of despair and all and you know there's like a kind of a real life thing with rihanna and like the chris brown relationship that is kind of vaguely alluded to by the way that they cover that song mm-hmm but I don't know. I, I just feel like all these elements were already like very present in the original song. So I, like I get it for what it is. But yeah, I would have liked if it were shorter, <laughs> especially because the next song Ian Curtis wish list, I wish was like seven minutes because I love this fucking song so much. <laughs> I think seven minutes, it would get a bit grating for me, but I do. I love it, too. It's again, it's extremely shushu. It's messy and just kind of putting it all out there. I can't believe I said it. Wish list. You know, I like, can't believe I said it. Wish list. <laughs> it's just what a what a perfect aside. You are a mess. Apparently, an Ian Curtis wish list is a list of things that you have convinced yourself that you want to have happen, but you know are never going to happen. So maybe the fact that Ian Curtis died mm-hmm. when he was so young is why there's an Ian Curtis. I don't know exactly what the what that refers to. With I always thought it was like about suicide, which it kind of vaguely is in the general sense, in the sense that this album is about it. Yeah, although not, but not with anywhere near the same tone as like as Apisat or Blacks, you know. Yeah. But this is this song is Jamie Stewart talking to themselves. When you tell me everything, it will make me want to take it too far. And you ask me everything, I will take it too far. I don't know. Credo to Jamie Stewart and Shushu is like, I take everything too far. <laughs> this is apparently about their own kind of lack of self-control and being unrealistic in relationships and just behaving in a in a way that is oversensitive and over like emoted, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
definitely something I can relate to because when I get like upset, I get really fucking oh, upset. Yeah. And I, I mean, don't it's know. just one of the great things about quintessential things about Shushu is that yeah, the the absolute like extremity of reaction. And this is what attracts so many fans to just email them and talk to them about stuff that's going on in their life. And, you know, like Shushu is one of those artists who attracts fans like that in the way that like, I think I said in the Tori Amos episode that she would have fans come up to her and be like, you know, I'm in a horrible situation right now and just unload about all this stuff. I think Shushu attracts like similar people going through really bad circumstances and i think this album in particular attracts that because it is spoken so much from somebody who has also been in those circumstances and even if like jamie stewart is very positive in the interviews and seems to get along really well with their bandmate angela who i don't know if they're a couple or not it it seems like they are they're, they're best friends yeah i assumed that they were a couple but maybe not because they live together but who knows anyway <laughs> Jamie has said in their interview that it's very difficult to tour with a band like Shushu, but that also that like the more or less that a lot of the people who are not members of the band anymore, they don't talk to anymore, get along with, and they'd be happy if they never saw them again. <laughs> you know, they said that in a nice way, but yeah. So it seems like there, there's there been a lot of different drama, like uh, Carol Lee uh, McElroy, is that her name? Yep. Like, apparently, they did not get along at all. And they were related, right? <laughs> yeah, I think supposedly they were cousins. But, yeah. So this song is basically just a drone, and it's, I think, one of the most effective uses of just, like, a sort of pulsing part of just going, it's kind of like an emotional backdrop to everything that's happening and it just keeps going i think this is what i like about songs like this or, or like pink city is something where it's like things are sort of falling apart but there's a stability with the backing you know it's kind of on a grid in a way and like all the freak out is happening around that and this song really embodies that in its purest form because there's that drone but then there's all this weird synth noise happening around it but the ominous like cello sound is really just like what grounds it so well and makes it like a perfect. I think of this song is like the perfect album closer. It's one of my favorite album closers, maybe of all time on any album. Wow. I mean, it, it is good. It is. It's it's good. And again, it feels very quintessentially like a shoo closer, a nice bookend again after the really powerful way the album opens as well. Yes. And, you know, we have the iconic Jamie Stewart screaming in this. He says, the 2000 private loops making up my... <laughs> I, can't, I, I can't believe I said it. Wish list. My Ian Curtis, I can't believe I said it. Wish list. Ugh. And when you ask me everything Private loops making up my ah! Ian Curtis. I can't believe I said it. Wish list. And yeah, referring to themselves as JS, and of course the <laughs> sort of longing for someone to say, "Will you ever bleed out? Do you love me, Jamie Stewart?" <laughs> 
And then JS, I am kidding. I'm just kidding. I love that part. Yeah. The fact that the last line is. And then immediately after, the synths explode with noisy, shrill noises, and the drone goes on a little longer. I see why it ended when it did, but I would love this song. I I feel like it would be justified to make a song like this as long as seven minutes, but whatever. Like I said, I generally wouldn't listen. I kind of bounced off this album a little bit when I got into Knife Play and Fabulous Muscles, but I'd listen to this song and Happy Stat Commander just like over and over and over again. Yeah, I think that's normal. I you know they're probably again along with, in my opinion, along with Sad Punk and Girl Girl like the the big highlights on the album, but. It works. I think that might be why this album is so well regarded because you can't overstate how much like you make an impact on people if you have really strong openers and closers. Like there are albums that I think are overrated because they just open and close really well. For sure. Not that I would say this album is overrated at all, but yeah. Anyway, that's A Promise by Shoo Shoo. Love this album. I, not my favorite, but definitely not the worst. And I love Shoo Shoo so much and I'm so glad we got to talk about it. It's in my top three or four. Maybe my top four. I don't know. Maybe I put it under Dear God, I Hate Myself. It's around there. It doesn't have anything as stupid as that fucking Cumberland Gap song, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh. Okay, so where would you rank it? Oh my God. You'd think, you'd think by now I would come in with this in mind, and yet, and yet. Um, you know, I would probably, I'd probably put it below Vespertine. Okay, so it's number six, I it's think. It's number six list. for me, yeah. Okay, it's around the same place on my list. It's I'm actually putting it number five. Above Source Tags? Above Source Tags yeah. and below GeoGetty. So, I mean, objectively, I think Source Tags is a tighter album but I have more of a personal attachment to Shushu. And I also like, for me, I always give points for originality and creativity. For sure. Even if it isn't like, so like artists like Shushu or Bjork or Boards of Canada for me are going to rank higher just inherently because I value like what they do. For sure. And the thing is, I love Shushu, but sort of like why Tori Amos is at number three, which is that this is not my favorite album by them by any means. Yeah. And so, like, it ranks really high just for being shoo-shoo, kind of, but not the highest because it's not, like, you know, it's not Knife Play, it's not Women as Lovers, it's not LaFerrey or Air Force. Yeah, I don't like LaFerrey, but... I, nobody does, but I do. I do, damn it. I'm sensitive and quiet. We're going to have to hash it out whenever we do Fabulous Muscles about that, because that's probably my favorite shoo-shoo yep. album, and it is not one of your favorites, but... Maybe my opinion will change. I haven't listened to it in a while, but yeah, it was not. I'm a contrarian person. We'll get to it when we get to it, but I really must uh, say, like, and I assume a lot of our listeners do like shoo-shoo because it was voted for. Right. But... If you have not heard especially those first three albums, and yes, venture off into other Shushu if you want to as well. Um, and I would recommend Dear God, I Hate Myself because it's accessible. It's like you get what Shushu is, but it's more of a pop album. It's the closest thing to a pop album they ever made. Right. Although some of the early Ten in the Swear Jar stuff is more poppy too. 
But yeah, I, I mean, these first three albums, I do think, like, I cannot overstate the importance of some of the best stuff for Shushu. So yeah, just like with Tori Amos, or maybe the only comparison point for me, like, I really recommend that yeah. more people check their stuff out in general, even when you don't like it. Deeply gay, cathartic music. What could, what more could you ask for? Yes, and definitely a big influence on me, too, even though I didn't really get into them until, you know, my 20s. So what are we doing next week? Next episode. Or next week, next episode. So we have not agreed on this because, so you had a potential suggestion of doing Magnetic Fields. Yeah, of doing Get Lost. But I might want to suggest that we do a 2000s album because we did two 90s albums right in a row this past time, like something from maybe 2000 or 2000. I, I don't know. We can talk about it. Okay. If we don't agree on that, then... I'm not married to Get Lost. I'm down for okay. whatever. I would like to do Get Lost at some point. I just want to maybe stay in the 2000s because we had... Let's do Knife Play. Let's just keep with Juju for a while. <laughs> do, you, do you really want to? We could. <laughs> um... No, we, we, let's, let's talk it out. Okay, we'll think about it. But we'll I, think about I it. I wouldn't be opposed. Yeah. Huh. That was a good fucking album. That did not even occur to me. Um, let's check to see if there are any emails for the show. Uh, there aren't. I, I, no. Yeah. Well, we have a show email. Yes. Feel free to email us. I know we slowed down a little bit on the episode, so that's probably why we haven't gotten as many emails. But yes, we still have an email. We're still checking it. Kitchforkpodcast at gmail.com. I think I said on the previous episode, <laughs> the sponsor thing, I did, the sponsor, like I need to retool that because it wasn't like properly connected. I think only one person bought something anyway, but. But thank you to that one person. Yeah, I need to talk to Evan about it because um, Evan is the person who made Imitone. And also, yeah, if you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts because that is helpful. And yeah, I I am into the idea of like trying to do interviews maybe as like separate just bonus things in the future, but I don't have any immediate desire or plan to do that. But But yeah, maybe something to think about. Yeah, stay tuned. We're, it's our best new music year. Our best new music year. And we're going to, after whatever album we do next, we're going to be back on the back new, best new music, the back new music. The back new music. <laughs> Cannot wait. Can't wait to get to fucking Apple. Oh, let's, God. Yeah. Dear Hoof. We're going to be on the best new music train. Dear goddamn Hoof. 2003 is really the year. But yeah, I have been your co-host, Liz Ryerson. I have been your other co-host, Max Cohen. And I hope you've enjoyed the genital mutilation of listening to this album. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs>